Shalom, shalom, friends. How nice to be with you during Pesach, during Chola Moed, where we say Moedim Lesimcha, wishing all good wishes for, for peace and for good health and uh, a joyful a joyful week. And I'm excited to hear, be here with you today in session four of Plato, who lived roughly from 429 to 347 BCE. And let's start with a poll question. Do you believe in the soul? Option one, I believe I have a soul because I experience it. Option two, I don't know if I have a soul, maybe. Option three, I don't believe in souls. I know that doesn't exhaust the full uh, range of views, but maybe you can find one there that resonates for you most. Okay, let's see our results. Okay, 67% here say, I believe I have a soul because I experience it. 22% say, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if I have a soul, maybe. And 11% say, I don't believe in souls. Okay, great. And all of you are welcome. <laughs> okay. How do we know what is truly real? Does a perfect world exist? If not, can we create one? What is the nature of the human soul? Are all people equally valuable? It is said that of all Western philosophy is but a footnote to Plato whose metaphysical thought covered everything from religion to human nature to science to love and sexuality. While the Jewish tradition doesn't generally adopt the same positions on these topics as Plato, Plato was the, was the one to lay the groundwork for philosophical debates that have gone on throughout the world over thousands of years. And Judaism, intentionally or not, has been in dialogue with him. Plato's view of philosophy bears a likeness to what we might think of today as mysticism. It assumes there are higher hidden truths one must discern that can shed light on the way the world is to ideally function. Though Plato doesn't speak of God in the way that Jews traditionally have, he does believe that the highest of philosophical truths is the good which sheds light on all other ideas. We tend to think of Plato as just a student of Socrates in Athens from about 2,400 years ago. But he's also, he was also deeply influenced by the pre-Socratic thinkers, such as Pythagoras, Heraclitus, and Parmenides. For almost all of these people, what we know of them, we know from the writings of Plato. And unlike with Socrates, whose teachings we don't have, we don't have directly, we believe we have the totality of all of Plato's written work. It is worth noting that Plato is just his pen name, given by his wrestling coach, given his physical size, but his actual name was Aristocles, son of Aristo. All of Western thought continues to be in dialogue with Plato. As mentioned, Alfred Whitehead has famously noted, the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Neoplatonism was deeply influenced by Christian and Islamic thinkers. But when we talk about Platonism, what we're primarily referring to is Plato's theory of forms. 
In the theory of forms, there are two worlds, our material reality and the unseen world of forms or ideals. We might understand the world of forms to consist of the abstract blueprints for how things would ideally be, right? There's the heaven and the earth. Those who find, find it meaningful to make such a distinction. There's the body and the soul. The classic example used to explain this is a table. Yes, you have a table in your house, but it is not the ideal table, which exists only in the heavenly image of tableness. A real table is known through your senses, but the ideal table, the form of a table, you can conceive of only through pure reason. For Plato, there is the messy world we live in and the ideal perfect world of forms. In a way, this is similar to Jewish mysticism, where, which also conceives of an ideal heavenly realm that run, runs parallel to our own world. However, one of the unique innovations of Jewish mysticism is that we see it as our goal not only to gain knowledge of this heavenly realm, but also to perform actions in this world, which can positively impact the world above. Hasidut places a great emphasis on this idea, as we can see in the writings of the Maggid of Mezrich, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, who taught it this way. This is the meaning of the title, the Song of Songs. One who sings a song below can arouse many songs on high. For Plato, the world here is trying to copy the perfect world above. In Judaism, we are repairing both the world here and the world above. Tikkun olamot, the repair of the world. Judaism's picture of heaven, then, is not a blueprint, but a mosaic shaped by the repairs we've made here. Plato's best-known teaching might be his allegory of the cave, which I suspect many of you are familiar with, which teaches about the ascent of the soul to achieve enlightenment. According to Plato, the better, to better understand the way we experience the world, we must imagine it as if we are chained to the wall of a cave. A fire sits behind us, and men carry objects in front of the fire, which then cast shadows on the wall of the cave upon which we look. We look at them thinking they are real, but can't recognize that they are just illusions. However, if one was able, they could free themselves from their chains, find their way out of the darkness of the cave, and behold the world as it is illuminated by the sun. For Plato, the ph philosopher is able to achieve this, to break free from the cave of illusions, when they use reason to recognize that the world of appearance is just an illusion. Rather, they discover the tr that true world is that of the ideal forms. You know, there's this 30-minute film I recently showed my kids. You may have seen it called The Boy, the Mole, um, the Fox, and the Horse. And at one point, yeah, I, I see a, a nodding head. At one point, uh, one of the animals looks into the reflection in the water and says, it's so amazing that all we see is our exter externality when almost all of life happens inside of us. Um, and it, indeed, many people live on a, on a world of surface realities where what they think the world is is what we see, as opposed to what is experienced so much more deeply. However, in believing human beings could free themselves from the cave, Plato was, for better or worse, an elitist. 
He did not believe that most had the capacity to philosophize. Those few who were capable of it were unique and should be appointed as political leaders, empowered to make decisions for the collective. Listening to anyone else would mean putting in charge those who only know the shadows of things rather than how they truly appear. The theory of forms reflected in Plato's parable of the cave is about the relationship between human perceptions and truth. Most people are fools because they are led primarily by their senses, which can deceive them rather than by reason. They fall into the trap of empiricism, that perception is reality and that our senses alone can provide us with something objective. Okay, now let me say something very controversial for a moment, and I hope nobody will hold me to it. <laughs> but um, as you know, democracy emerges with the Greeks, not democracy as we know it at all, you know, um, <laughs> by, and by any means, but the notion of, of um, kind of a collectively governed society. And I want to make clear, first of all, that I am pro-democracy. I am opposed to attacks on democracy. Um, I support the idea of all people having a vote. And yet, I do just want to raise the question um, of the notion that the uneducated have an equal vote. Um, the problem of people who live in a cave of illusions have the, having the power of, of being a part of collectively governing society is a real challenge. And so I don't support Plato's elitism that only white male philosophers should be, you know, the ones in control of the world by, by any means. Um, but it is worth noting, like, should some degree of education be required um, for participants in democracy, right? What are the duties of citizenship? The notion that we have to in some way be thoughtful and educated if we're, if we're making major decisions around war and taxation and public policy, that if people are voting on issues they literally know nothing about, um, that's a problem. So what do we do with that problem? And if we can move that out of the political tensions of the day from <laughs> um, around democracy and move that into a more healthy conversation around duties of citizenship and responsibilities of, around democracy, I think that would be good. Okay, gonna, gonna bracket that conversation for later. Plato's allegory of the cave is also similar to a legendary story in the Talmud in which Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, yes, Cheryl, that's right. Some people's truths are illusions. Thank you. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is sentenced to death for criticizing the Roman government and goes into hiding in a cave along with his son, Rabbi Elazar. There they are miraculously given a carob tree and spring of water. And for 12 years, they stay in the cave praying and studying Torah. Anyone remember what book is written or thought of them? Tradition holds that during this time, Shimon Bar Yochai received the mysteries of the Zohar. The foundational text of Jewish mysticism emerges from that cave. Then Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi, who we're thinking about this week, maybe he came to your Seder, he, he skipped over mine. Uh, I'm sure he came to Gary's. Uh, Elijah the prophet comes and tells Shimon Bar Yochai that the emperor has died and he's no longer in danger. So Rashbi and his son leave the cave where they see workers plowing and sowing. These people abandon eternal life of Torah and engage in temporal life for their own sustenance, Shimon Bar Yochai says. And he and his son shoot fireballs from their eyes at the common people. A voice from heaven then says to them, did you emerge from the cave in order to destroy my world? Return to your cave. 
A year later, they emerge from the cave and see an elderly man preparing for Shabbat. See how beloved the mitzvot are to Israel, Shimon Bar Yochai says to his son. Their minds were put at ease, the Talmud teaches, and they were no longer as upset that people were not engaged in Torah study all day. While both stories involve individuals being forced to live in a cave rather than the real world, the story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai makes clear that there are times when the enlightened may be condemned to dwell alone. Rather than glorify those with knowledge of the supernal realms, the Talmud is wary that such knowledge may cause individuals to show disdain for the world as it is because it pales in comparison to the ideal world. Think of the critique of the person who lives in an ivory tower, right? That person, all their friends are academics. They know nobody who works, um, you know, manual labor or has any friends as such. They think of them as fools by and large. For Plato, the goal of the philosopher is to bring enlightenment to all people. Whereas in the Talmud, it is enough for the scholars and regular people, so quote unquote, to each find fulfillment in their own way. It is not coincidental that just as Plato is the founder of philosophy, the philosophy of mysticism, Rashbi is by tradition a key figure of Jewish mysticism, maybe even the founder to some degree. They're both people thought to possess a special kind of knowledge from the cave. Plato's knowledge through reason and Rabbi Shimon's knowledge through study and revelation. Plato's ideas are overlapped with Jewish thought regarding the nature of the soul. It makes sense that for Plato, we're obviously not merely bodies, but souls. He primarily associates it with the mind and intellect as what governs the body, even as it remains separate from it. The soul, unlike the body, is the essence of who we are. Plato believed in the immortality of the soul and engaged in several long dialogues about the afterlife and reincarnation. Why he's very attractive to Christian and Islamic thinkers. This is not too far from Jewish conceptions of the soul. However, in Jewish thought, the soul is identified not only with the intellect, but is said to consist of multiple parts. The nefesh, which is the breath of life the Ruach, which is the spirit, the Neshama, the part that connects us to God, and the Chaya and Yechida, the two higher levels of soul that transcend this world. So too, in traditional Judaism, the soul might be thought to reincarnate, according to some, or be immortal, according to all, traditionally. There's also commonalities between Plato's view on gender and those of the Jewish tradition. In the book of Genesis, it says, and God created humankind in the divine image, creating it in the image of God. Male and female, God created them. Rashi notes that according to the Midrash, this means that the first person contained both genders, only to be divided later. So too for Plato, the fullest form of a person is not a man or a woman, but both. Here is um, what Plato writes in the Symposium. In the first place, there were three kinds of human beings, not merely the two sexes, male and female, as at present. There was a third kind as well, which had equal shares of the other two. For man-woman was then a unity in form no less than name, composed of both sexes and sharing equally in male and female. There was one head to the two faces, which looked opposite ways. There were four ears, two privy members, and all the other parts as may be imagined in proportion. 
The rabbis may very well have been influenced by the Greeks, for they directly cite the Greek word androgyn to describe the first human beings, who were a combination of both male and female. It says in the Midrash in Genesis Rabbah, said Rav Yirmiya ben Elazar, in the hour when the Holy One created the first human, God created that first human as an andro androgyn, a Greek word. And of course, as it is said, male and female, God created them. Said Rav Shmuel bar Nachman, in the hour when the Holy One created the first human, God created it double-faced and sawed him and made him backs, right? So the rabbis too have this notion that male and female were created in one body only to be cut apart ultimately. Um, also connected to the notion of soulmate, right? To some degree, that person that you were kind of initially created with. Unlike Judaism, Plato believed that human beings could be broken down as having one of three kinds of souls, which aligned with a rigid class system, a soul of the appetite for the working class, a spiritual soul for the warrior class, and a soul of reason for what he called the philosopher king, the kind of person he envisioned as a ruler. This is the kind of person you want governing your society. While Judaism doesn't generally divide people strictly into hierarchies, it does have a lot to say about how to run a just society. And so Maimonides, who learned deeply from the works of Plato's student Aristotle by, by way of the works of Islamic philosophers, had his own conception of a philosopher king. He wrote in his guide for the perplexed about how a leader must learn from the attributes of God. He derives this from when Moses asks to see God's face and God responds that this is impossible. Even so, God is willing to pass before Moses, thus revealing what, have be what has become known as the 13 attributes of mercy, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. In his great philosophical work, The Guide for the Perplexed Maimonides writes, it behooves the governor of a city if he is a prophet, to acquire similar, similarity to these attributes so that these actions may proceed from him according to a determined measure and according to the deserts of the people who are affected by them and not merely because of his following a passion. According to Maimonides, God's attributes were not to be discerned by contemplating some hidden divine realm, but can be found when one place pays close attention to the natural world and the way that it functions. He writes over here, for instance, one apprehends the kindness of God's governance in the production of the embryos of living beings, the bringing of various faculties to existence in them and in those who rear them after birth, faculties that preserve them from destruction and annihilation and protect them against harm and are also useful to them in all their doings that are necessary to them. To move to a conclusion, the way Plato would articulate it, the basis of being moral and constructing a just society is one where people have acquired the wisdom to understand the form of the good, right? If you understand the good merely in physical terms, you have, you have missed the point. You need to know the form of the good and thus govern a society according to those ideals. Only the knowledgeable, Plato and Rambam would agree, are fit to rule. Friends, before concluding, 
It's worth noting that the most commonly referenced popular culture idea emerging from Plato, anyone want to take a guess that we haven't mentioned it yet? The idea of platonic love. <laughs> Although never called that by Plato himself, he did suggest that there is a type, a type of love that is non-romantic and non-sexual. This is a type of friendship where one transcends attraction towards another's body to a higher level of attraction to another's soul. Interesting enough, in the symposium, Plato addresses this through the lens of pregnancy. One can have a sexual encounter that produces a pregnancy of the body, but one can also have a platonic love encounter that produces a pregnancy of another type of virtue. There is a ladder of love where one can ascend to higher forms of love for self, other, and the divine. So it's interesting today how much attention is put on romantic relationships, on uh, physical appearance and sexuality. Um, and this, but this notion of platonic love has been alive throughout all generations since he derived this. And he has seven different categories of love. A Catholic theologian, C.S. Lewis, has a book called the Four, um, called Four Loves, Four Languages of Love, or something like that. So to conclude, does Judaism either approve or disapprove of Plato? His thought was so wide ranging that one can't really arrive at any type of binary conclusion. The questions posed by Plato's work, however, are ones that Judaism, as all other Western faiths, has had and will continue to have the challenge of wrestling with. Friends, I'm so grateful to have spent this Passover day with you all. And, um, and Michael, thank you for that, that post on the, on the side, which I invite people to also read. Um, and, and I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday, where we're going to jump into the world of Aristotle. After Aristotle, we will fast forward out of the Greeks. We will never leave the Greeks because they all always influence the future of, of Western thought. But we will, after Aristotle, we will uh, rapidly move uh, a few centuries forward. Have a great rest of your day. Great to see you all.